Hitchhikers and the girls next door dress up like movie stars. for humoring me and singing that song. Um, I was a little bit nervous when I talked to Kimberly about Michael singing this song, and he sang it up last night at the Foothills service, and this one was even better with the whole band and everything. So um, I think one thing's pretty apparent at this juncture, and that's that the song you just heard up here on the stage um, is not your normal church song that you'd hear on any Christian radio station with any kind of frequency. And some of you might be a little bit nervous right now thinking, as has Peter lost his mind letting some girl talk about um, our discussion today using this southern twangy country song? And apparently the answer is yes. So would you pray with me now as we get started? Lord, I want to thank you um, for this time and this place where we can come together and uh, learn more about you and be together as a community I would pray um, that you just bless this time that we have together and bless the, the banquet service and the banquet meal we're going to be having afterwards, and um, that just all of this be holy and pleasing to you. In your name I pray. Amen. So first I want to get started just by reading the scripture that we're going to dive into for today. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 7. 
Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If they fall down, they can help each other up. Uh, but pity those who fall and have no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So before we dive just too deep into this, I wanted to introduce myself for those of you I haven't been able to meet yet. My name's Alicia, and I've been attending the sanctuary for about two years now. Um, I first heard Peter speak back at Lookout Mountain, which I know some of you um, attended there as well. This was back in 2004, but I wasn't living here at the time. I was um, away at school. When I moved back to Denver about three years ago, this church was a natural place for me to come and check out and see what was going on here. And while I went to a handful of other churches to see what they were all about, I always found myself wondering what I was missing out here at the sanctuary and eventually uh, came to call the sanctuary my church home. I couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time, but there just seemed to be something that resonated with me here. And now we are here a couple years later, and I just really appreciate the opportunity to speak with y'all today. So back to the song that we just heard. This song is appropriately called I Love This Bar, was written and recorded by Toby Keith. It's one of Toby Keith's most popular songs. It went all the way to number one on the country charts back in 2003 when it was released, um, and has over 13 million hits on YouTube. Capitalizing off of its success, Toby Keith also has 17 restaurants that he's opened called Toby Keith's I Love This Bar and Grill, including one right here in Denver in the Northfield area. Now, there could have been multiple reasons why this song found its way to the number one spot. It could have been that the tune's pretty catchy, at least if you like country music. Um, it could have been that there's a lot of male fans of Toby Keith's song, uh, Keith songs, especially because Toby Keith is generally seemed to be a little bit of a, a guy's guy. It could be that there's a lot of female fans of Toby Keith's music, um, generally because those female fans might say that Toby Keith has a deep voice and a somewhat sexy demeanor. It could have also been simply because there were no other good songs out in 2003, making that number one spot easily attainable. Um, or even still alternatively, there could have been heavy producer-backed marketing for this song, giving it more airtime than all the others. Well, I'm not sure we'll ever know the true reason why this song found its way to number one, uh, but I want to tell you a little bit about, about why I like it so much and have contributed to a, a few of those 13 million hits on YouTube. The lyrics seem to stir up a longing inside of me, a longing for a place to go where there's all different kinds of people enjoying the same place and enjoying each other's company, a longing for a community um, of acceptance regardless of what they're bringing to the table, a longing for a community bound by common longings, and of course, in the case of the song, a shared love of the bar. I frequently ask myself, where does this longing come from and why does it seem so strong, like a force that's been guiding me through my life? And I think the answer lies somewhat with my um, past with the church. I was lucky to grow up with great Christian parents, they're here with me today, and um, we regularly attended church growing up. We um, all seemed to like it by all accounts. It was a, a good place and a place where we all had good friends. But from a young age, I started to observe a handful of things about the church we attended. 
I observed that all the families at this church were pretty similar to mine, your kind of basic white, upper middle class, uh, suburban family just here outside of Denver. I observed that my parents were pretty well known at this church. My dad co-led an adult education course at the church, which regularly had over 50 attendees each week and sometimes even up to 100 attendees there. All the adults seemed to be in Bible studies together and all the kids went to the same schools and played the same sports and danced at the same dance companies. Um, and it seemed to also follow that because my parents were well-known, I was also well, well-known at this church. Um, not in the sense that people really knew my heart and, and knew who I was, but they definitely knew that I was Mike and Debbie's daughter. And at this church, when I was asked how I was doing, um, I quickly learned that the response really that only anyone wanted to hear was that everything's great. You know, I'm totally a pro on the lacrosse field and I get straight A's and I'm involved in all these extracurricular activities and doing awesome at those. And, and definitely there were times in my life when, when that was true. I got pretty good grades in school and um, I generally did okay playing lacrosse. Um, but there were certainly times when those things weren't true, where I, uh, you know, struggled with different classes or different teachers and um, struggled with some of the extracurricular activities I was involved and feeling like the bar was set pretty high and, and I just couldn't quite attain it. I remember one time um, on the lacrosse field, I was a starter and generally played the whole game, but one game I was taken out at halftime just because I, I just wasn't playing well. I couldn't compete at the level that was required of me that day. But the message at the church was clear, is that certain things are okay and others, even if they're true, are, are not okay in that space. There's no room for failure and no room for struggles there. And it was really isolating. It's kind of interesting because at the time I didn't realize how isolating this was becoming. Um, after all, I had all the right answers and um, I was awesome and great and all those things that I said, said it pretty convincingly. And it wasn't really like I was screaming out for a place to be myself. I, I had friends and I had other things where I definitely felt like I could be myself and, um, and, and relax and, and people could know my heart. But looking back, something really profound was happening there in that space. And that's that there were these little lies being embedded in my mind um, about what the purpose of the church would be in my life. And this kind of brings me back to the first or a part in our scripture today. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. You see, the church where I was growing up was not at all like the bar and the song. The song's about acceptance, and I believe God is about acceptance and about love. But church for me was a place to put your best foot forward, to ensure that you fit inside the confines of the walls that were built up there, and to ensure you could be a part of that community. Now this practice of building up walls um, uh, around different types of groups isn't isolated to your modern American Christian church, but the concept lives in the secular world as, as well. We see it all around us with different groups. Um, the concept was uh, discussed in Dr. Seuss's book, The Butter Battle, which was um, published and released in 1984. I wanna read you the first few sentences of this book. On the last day of summer, 10 hours before fall, my grandfather took me out to the wall. For a while he stood silent, then finally he said, with a very bad shake of his very old head, as you know on this side of the wall we are Ukes, on the far side of this wall live the Zooks. Then my grandfather said, it's high time that you knew of the terribly horrible thing that Zooks do. In every Zook house and in every Zook town, every Zook eats his bread with the butter side down. 
But we yukes, as you know, when we breakfast or sup, spread our bread, Grandpa said, with the butter side up. That's the right, honest way, Grandpa gritted his teeth. So you can't trust a zook who spreads bread underneath. Every zook must be watched. He has kinks in his soul. That's why, as a youth, I made watching my goal. Watching zooks for the zook watching border patrol. So it seems that even at a young age, there's a need to address this division that, that we see around ourselves and that, that appears to be so natural. Um, the book The Butter Battle goes on to discuss the turmoil created between the Ukes and the Zooks on either side of the wall um, based on this division, but the, um, the thought of what's the appropriate way to consume your toast. And this um, tension led so much as to fighting with various weapons in the book, such as the Kickapoo Kid and the Triple Sling Jigger. So at this time, I just wanted to kind of um, let you know the butter battle um, has largely been known to be somewhat of a political book. It was written during the Cold War era and is largely held as an anti-war, potentially satirical piece of literature. Um, just want you to know it's not my purpose at this time or in this place to be making any kinds of uh, political statements about war or the Cold War, and, and mostly just because I'm not smart enough to venture down the paths of those types of topics. But um, the point simply being this, this theme of segregation that we see in our lives, we see across many spectrums at different times and under different circumstances. We see it at school and at work and at church and so on. And to me, the question inevitably becomes, at what point have we decided, after we have decided, to segregate along one dimension, do we decide to segregate further and isolate further among other dimensions? It seems only a matter of time before the Ukes, who have decided that buttered bread makes up the very soul of their being, begin to look deeper at buttered bread. And in doing so, the Ukes would find that on their side of the wall, all the Ukes do certainly eat their bread with the butter side up, but they might, they might find that some Ukes eat, eat wheat bread while others eat sourdough and, and still others would eat rye. And how can that be? I mean, what with buttered bread being the core facet that make a, makes a Uke a Uke? Um, there must be that there's one that's far superior than all the others. And the division would continue. And after ciabatta or focaccia or whatever bread is crowned as king, uh, well, what about the other, the other aspects that go into eating breakfast? What about salted versus unsalted butter, whipped versus slow-churned butter, and the time of day you're allowed to consume your toast? And the division would continue. And in the end, the very dimensions which were used with the intention of uniting a group um, by, uh, with all these common thoughts would begin to cause division and eventually isolation, bringing with it the feeling that you have to eat a certain type of bread and a certain type of butter, a certain type of way and at a certain time of day in order to belong. Even if you like or prefer or perhaps require something different, say for example some of our gluten-free friends here in the congregation, well this person would have no space to be themselves on the uke side of the wall. They'd potentially live a life eating something that would cause them to be sick, all for the sake of following rules and conforming to the perceived correct way to be. And again, I find myself back at the scripture. For whom am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. 
We see this practice so often in churches where there's groups that get together and, and all say on the outside, here's only a, a couple of things you need to believe to be a part of our group. But then as you dig a little bit deeper, you find that in reality, there's a, a laundry list of items you need to believe to belong inside those walls with those people. But not at the bar, not at Toby Keith's bar. That's a place where you come as you are a place where there's no posted or, or unspoken rules for being accepted. Just the acceptance that comes with enjoying the bar. So I continue to observe this somewhat strange practice or desire to unite through division after I graduated from college. Um, I spent some time in some of the United States' largest cities just outside of New York, and then um, uh, I spent a, a couple years in Chicago. And I was at a time in my life where I wanted to meet people and socialize, and I found myself frequently at bars and other social venues. And one thing I found really interesting at these places is that there are many bars and nightclubs in these, in these cities that have dress codes. Dress codes that would say women need to be in heels and tight and revealing dresses, and men should really focus on wearing blazers and, and solid colored shirts, all for the sake of making sure they're not being too flamboyant um, when they're there at the, the establishments. These practices are not uncommon in big cities like New York and Chicago and Miami and Las Vegas where there's a big nightlife scene. Uh, but even some of our um, establishments here in Denver have um, these dress codes. The dress codes can vary from place to place, uh, some focusing on just making sure only attractive people with a lot of money are coming into their clubs. Um, then there's still others on the opposite end of the spectrum which want to make sure that their establishments are not pretentious at all, and they do that by ensuring uh, people don't really wear ties or any other business attire when they're there. These dress codes are not necessarily advertised, but rather, many times, can just be um, established by the bouncer at the door. It's up to the bouncer to enforce the selected ambiance by only admitting those who fit the bill. But in other places, there are um, some strict dress codes that are actually published. I found one online, um, it's not here in Denver, but I think in Minnesota, that had 31 specific listed items for their dress code in order for you to, to get into the establishment. In a New York Times article in 2011, Douglas Quenqua, who's a journalist, noted that the truth about these dress codes is, and, and even at the most exclusive velvet-roped clubs, is that they are frequently intended to keep a certain type of person out, and the clothes then are, are, are merely secondary. So we find again here in this space that the message is clear, that some things are allowed and some things aren't. Some people are allowed and others aren't. You're being judged by the bouncer at the door, and the isolation continues. Now you might be finding yourself saying, well, Alicia, that's all fine and good, but dress codes can be a good thing sometimes, right? Um, especially in, in maybe our, our schools with young children. Uh, they, dress codes can sometimes maintain safety and security for our children, especially if the clothing could incite bullying or, or violence of any kind. In 2013, a study put out by the University of Nevada that uh, studied not just dress codes but specific school uniforms noted that those schools reported decreased um, instances of discipline, gang involvement and bullying, an increased safety, ease of going to school, and confidence and self-esteem for their students. So it is true, our, our society does need walls and boundaries and, and, and laws in order for us to determine what's acceptable versus what's destructive and, and what's harmful. But I find myself wondering, does God have the same segregations for us 
as it relates to his grace? Are some allowed to experience it while others aren't? Do we believe we are charged as the church with the task of identifying who's in and who's out? And should churches, which are man-made establishments, be places where these lines are drawn, whether they're stated or not or intended or not? Well, for me, I'm not so sure. It seems these divisive practices lead to isolation and seem to create a contrasting environment to the one we are called to be in the body of Christ. It brings me back again to the second part of the scripture, which I'll read again. The two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If they fall down, they can help each other up. But pity those who fall and have no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So what's the purpose of this division that we find all around us in churches and schools with just our normal groups of people, with our groups at work? Creating a space where some are allowed and some aren't allowed. Would we not be further lessening the community we are called to be a part of in the body of Christ? A body where two are better than one and three are quickly, not quickly taken apart? Or would we be creating a space where all of us have to fit a certain mold on the outside, even when on the inside that's not the case? In the song, there's so many different people who are in the same place and a part of the same community, and they all seem the better for it. And the message here is clear and decidedly different than the message that our society sends us, and that's that you're welcome here. It seems possibly the real reason this song was so successful is this. It touches something real in us, longings that are universal in all of us, longings to not be judged by the bouncer at the door, watched by the zook watching border patrol, or excluded by our churches with high expectations of its people for the practical applications of their teachings. I love the song for a ton of reasons, but I love it mostly because there's all these different people and at different stages of life, and they all love the same place together. I think it has something to do with the fact that if some feel that maybe there's a time in their life when they're losing more than winning, they wouldn't have to change their favorite happy hour place. They don't have to change who they are because they no longer fit the mold in order to be accepted at this place. It's a place as well where it's also good for things to be going well. You have a lot of people in the song that are, you know, where things are going really well in their lives. It's a place where all look forward to going. And the bar wouldn't be the same without all of these different people. If they only had just the yuppies or just the hookers or just the rednecks, well, I'm not sure that Toby Keith would like that bar very much. And I'm certain I wouldn't like that bar very much either. Now, I can only speak from personal experience, but I believe the Lord is calling out to me and he's calling out to you to come hang out with him at his bar. And his bar is infinitely better than the bar in the song because we all aren't gonna be being drunk on wine, but whether, rather intoxicated by his spirit. It's not about this church or this building or, or any specific location, but it's about all the people who make up his body, delighting in the community he has for all of us, here on earth, in heaven, or, or any place. It ain't too far and there's no cover charge, but most importantly, the message is clear. Come as you are because the Lord made you who you are and he's in love with who you are, no matter what you're bringing to the table. Would you pray with me?
Lord, thank you for this body here at the sanctuary. Thank you that we strive to be a place where people can come as they are and they don't feel like they have to bring something to the table in order to be accepted here. Lord, we know that this place has, has its faults and, and we have uh, trouble sometimes really, really living that out. But I pray that you continue to guide us and continue to show us that your body is a place where everyone can be accepted and that you continue to guide us to, to hold that principle true to, our, uh, to the very core of who we are. I wanna thank you again for the time we have here with the banquet service and um, just pray that this community would know that they are so loved by you and, and so loved by the body that you're calling us to be a part of, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins, drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Last night, I listened to Alicia's message for the first time at the Foothill service, and whenever someone else speaks and I'm called to do communion, I have to sit there and think of, now how does this relate to the communion table or whatever? And the whole time Alicia was speaking, I thought, this is so easy, because what's the point? It's this, I love this bar. <laughs> You know, it's like Paul said in Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why do, we, why do we like alcohol? Well, it's because, at least for a moment, it destroys inhibitions, right? And when it destroys inhibitions, then it connects people. The problem is that you wake up in the morning with a headache and the people get driven further and further apart from each other. And so I love this bar because I really think this is a better bar. And uh, God is the one who destroys inhibitions and connects people, and, and it's fascinating to me that for thousands of years, the church has found ways to judge people before they get to the bar. So we place bouncers around, around the bar in order to, 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 to judge who can come and, and who cannot come. And yet, do you understand who was sitting there when Jesus said, drink of this, all of you? There was a guy named Thomas, right? Who was gonna doubt him. Peter, and right, check out the Gospel of Luke, Judas. So, so if you're worse than Judas, I, I don't know, but actually Paul's the one that records about the communion and he says he was the worst of sinners. So in other words, Jesus offers this. He says, drink of it, all of you. Now in the Gospel, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, um, he who comes to the table in an unworthy manner drinks judgment upon himself. But do you understand why, why that is? We don't judge who comes to the bar. The bar itself is the judgment. And so if you come to this table thinking that you deserve this because of how great you have made yourself, well, let me tell you, the grace of God will judge the hell out of you. And, and, God's, and God's serious about grace. 
But if you come to this table saying, I don't deserve this, I need the mercy of God, well, the grace of God will judge heaven right into you. You are his sanctuary, and he adores you, and this is his bar. This is the bar that creates the party where all the inhibitions are dropped and all the weird and strange people, the zooks and the yukes, that butter the bread upside, downside, however you butter your bread, they come together and they create the body of Christ, which is the new creation, the kingdom of God, our eternal habitation. So this morning, um, come to the bar. Surrender yourself to the judgment of God and let's allow him to create us into the body that uh, we are destined to be and, and that we already are in Jesus' name. Dark cup is wine, the light cup is juice. They're both the mercy of God for you. Come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and then offer the Lord God your worship.